Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things. Friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. That was kind of a hard verse to have a sweet little girl read there. Gracious, who did that? Welcome to the season of Lent. Last week, I was sick and could not, you can still hear it in my voice, still kind of getting that way, uh, getting back to, to write, so I'm, I'm, I'm still a little scratchy, but I, I wanted to make sure, I felt like this was a very important passage of Scripture. This is actually last week's passage of Scripture, but I feel like it's, it's pretty important and kind of a foundational piece for the discussions that we're going to have throughout the rest of Lent, and so I stuck with this Genesis 2 and 3 passage, which I think is probably pretty familiar to us. It is um, a passage in which we hear God calling Adam and Eve to a particular vocation. And then in chapter 3, it is most famously understood as the fall. And we're going to talk about all of that, but we're going to get to it after we talk about some other things. For example, I want us to talk about the fact that what we have here is in some sense, a crucifix. We said this on, on Wednesday night of Ash Wednesday. Um, Protestants like crosses and Catholics like crucifixes. And I kind of get why, and I kind of like why. I mean, we, we Protestants like to say, yep, life is lived uh, in the shadow of an empty cross and in the light of the resurrection, and I like that, I like that. The problem is, at times, that we work a little bit too hard to sanitize the cross. Part of the reason that times we like an empty cross is because the other is just too bloody. I am aware it's Kid Sunday. I'm aware. And I want to make sure that, that we, we don't traumatize the kids. I'm okay traumatizing the adults. I, I, think, I think when you sanitize the cross, when you sanitize the cross, when, when you finally get to the point where you are, you are comfortable saying, I'm uncomfortable with the gore and the blood and, and all of that, here's part of what happens. Part of what happens is then you sort of opt out and you are necessarily under, underappreciate the extent to which grace has gone to make grace's point, the extent to which love has gone to make love's point. We say this all the time, and I hope you're hearing it. If it's, I hope it's one of those things that if we say it often enough, it'll finally sink in. Listen, the, the cross is not so much a symbol of how angry God gets with your sin. It is more reliably a symbol, the extent to which love will go to make love's point. This is how far grace goes. Grace absorbs the sin. Grace absorbs the damage done by people, chronically normal and human people, like Judas Iscariot and like John Middendorf. Because here's the other thing that happens when we sanitize a cross and we insist on something clean and something decorative. Not only do we underappreciate the extent to which love has gone to overcome We also underappreciate the extent to which we have something to do with the gore. Something about us that's something like them. 
those people who had something to do with the death of Christ. And, and, and so we're going to this season, while we have the cross, the pretty one, <laughs> we're gonna have the ugly one. I asked my friend Cody Raines who painted this for us. I said, Cody, uh, can you paint something ugly? And he said, yeah. Can you paint an ugly cross? Because I don't know that we can make the point that we need to make without an ugly cross. Without a dirty cross. And I'll come back to that. And, and I said this to you too. I, I uh, admitted that, uh, that awful, terrible movie, Passion of the Cross, Passion of the Christ. I, I admitted to you that I found myself looking away, so maybe I'm as guilty as anybody else, desiring something a little bit more safe, a little bit more sanitary, a little bit less confrontational. This is Judas Iscariot in that same movie. This is the guy who played, this is the character of Judas Iscariot in The Passion of the Christ. And, and every week I'm going to have other characters who we know had something to do directly, directly with this. Judas Iscariot did, most assuredly, right? Man, that guy. That Judas Iscariot guy belongs on a long list of bad people. Amen? Here's the thing. In reading through and researching this story, here's the thing. I am not sure that Judas Iscariot was, what's the word I'm looking for? Unusual. Now, our tradition is not one that holds that somehow God just made a pawn out of him, that, that somehow he was always going to be the fall guy. In fact, here's what we believe. He believed that he was worthy of disciple status that God called him, that Christ called him to be a part. And not only did Christ call him to be a part of the original 12, he was trustworthy. He was, he was charged with stewardship. You don't just hand over the money back to anybody. I'm, I'm sure resources were always tight. You had to trust the person. And you can even see in scripture, there are times when he really chimed in and said, is this the best use of this resource, right? We, we, we tend to, to hear that story. Judas was upset when the woman took all of the perfume, remember this, and, and anointed Jesus, and we always portray Judas is in the corner with his arms folded and his lips pursed saying, oh, this is bad, this is bad, because this resource could have been used to help a lot of people. Well, y'all, maybe so. Maybe Judas Iscariot knew by name the hungry people who could have been fed with this Perfume. If this perfume had been sold, maybe this much perfume could have fed a lot of people, and maybe Judas had enough conscience to say, is this the right thing? Now, was he underappreciative of the Messiah? Probably. I'm not sure this is yet, though, evidence that Judas was somehow possessed or evil. Now that language does come up. In the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of John, you have words like the devil entered Judas, or, or you have in the, in the book of John that the devil prompted Judas. But long before then, here's how we should understand Judas as a disciple of Christ. Who 
moved, I'm sure of this, not mile at a time away from Jesus, but inch at a time away from Jesus. You know, like, like you and me. I don't know very many people who move mile at a time away from Jesus. I don't know very many people who are saved and sanctified and petrified on one day and on the next day are completely lost. Typically, it takes some time. Typically, it's not just a decision that makes you Christian, and it's not a decision that makes you unchristian. It's a whole series of decisions that slowly but surely move you, move me, move us inch at a time away from the calling and the calling calling. It's tough, y'all. It's tough. And sometimes the calling brings with it, if we're going to answer the call, sometimes that means you're going to undergo something that's going to feel a whole lot like anxiety, maybe even fear, maybe terror, maybe terror, maybe impossible, confusing situations. I just think we have worked a little bit too hard to demonize Judas. And here's the reason I think we've worked too hard to demonize Judas. Here's the reason, right? We want to believe that Judas did something that we would never do. Oh, J Judas, can you believe? Oh, the devil did that to Judas. I hope the devil never does that to me. You guys, what if Judas was normal? What if this Lent, while we are confessing the distance between who I am and who Jesus is, what if we're also confessing the lack of distance between who I am and who Judas is? Because maybe it went like this. Maybe Judas was faithfully executing the office of disciple and treasurer of the movement, right? Maybe he was faithfully executing it, and then he started remembering he had family responsibilities back home, and that was especially concerning when you start to look up and this Jesus doesn't look like the Messiah. Maybe it was especially hard when you were counted on to make provision and to provide, but Jesus keeps giving stuff away. Jesus, how am I? How am, I, how am I supposed to, maybe there was this confusion and this conflict that crept in such that inch at a time, inch at a time, he moved away. And maybe he was more deeply and deeply convinced all the time that this was not the right way to go about being a Messiah because honestly, it doesn't look like it, does it? You're gonna change the world like this? I don't think so. Maybe, maybe he got to the point and maybe he had family at home and if not, wife and kids, maybe mother and father, that the Mosaic law charged him to care for, maybe he started to see the handwriting on the wall and said, if we don't do something soon, we, he's gonna die and we're gonna die with him. What sense is there in that? I got a family to get back to. I got a life to get back to. Simon Peter, we know, had family. Maybe Judah said, how do I get Simon Peter back to his family. You guys, have some sympathy and maybe even empathy for Judas Iscariot and do not allow yourself to lie that he is so far removed from you or from me that you just don't have to worry about that being you telling you what Judas Iscariot finally did, and admittedly, it was wrong and it was awful, but he didn't get there in one day. It wasn't one decision. It was a series of anguished 
decisions. And ultimately, convinced as he was toward the end of the kingdom of scarcity, convinced as he was that there was not enough money to go around, there was not enough influence to go around, that there might not even be enough life and breath to go around, Judas Iscariot made a chronically normal human decision, and he chose self-preservation. Now, if that becomes a sin, how many of us are lost? Okay, lots of us. That's the answer. The answer is lots, lots. He chose himself. He chose himself. He had a calling. The calling went something like this. Jesus said, follow me. And in order to follow, Judas had to leave behind a large portion of self. Jesus is still calling. And the calling goes something like this. Follow me. And in order to follow, each of us and all of us will have to leave behind a chunk of self. And if at some point, if at some point you choose the self over the Messiah, and then if you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again, then maybe you have more in common with Judas than you thought. Maybe me too. See, the calling always comes as a vocation. The calling always comes as a vocation. Now, this was not the first time that people were given a vocation, a calling and a vocation. And listen to this. Not only is there always calling and then vocation, there is always, always, always boundaries. There are always going to be boundaries that come along with the calling and the vocation. We see this in Genesis 2. We've just heard it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Here's your calling. Here's what I want you to do. Now, we understand this to be artistic imagery. We understand there's a lot going on here theologically. We understand this because looking at the first chapter, we hear God saying things like this. Man, this is good, 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 but humankind, this is very good. And we see this terminology, dominion, dominion. In other words, God wants to use us to help all of it. All of it. All of it. And you see it here in Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. You have calling and you have vocation, but there are boundaries. Always. And the Lord God commanded the man, hey, listen, see all these trees? Eat from them. You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the, no but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat, for in that day you shall, uh, that you eat it, you shall die. <laughs> this does not mean that God will kill them, because God doesn't kill them, right? Here's what this means. Listen, if you puncture the barrier, if you go outside the lines, if you go outside the boundaries, you will introduce a deathliness to your situation and this situation that does not now currently exist within the boundaries. Guys, that is always the case. If you don't believe it, ask Judas. That's always the case. And here's the other thing. Probably should say this now. 
We are people, each of us and all of us, who have a call. It's not just me. Listen, if you are just riding on my calling coattails, you are missing out. I'm not saying that God's somehow mad at you. What I'm saying is you are living beneath your privilege. You and I, we have a calling. You and I, we have this vocation. This calling becomes a, a way of being alive, of this vocation. But we also have boundaries. There is a covenant that exists between us and God, always has been. But that covenant always includes boundaries, always includes boundaries. With covenants, you have boundaries. Promises have prohibitions every single Time. Later today, I get to participate in a wedding. Beautiful young couple, Jordan Hobbs and Garen Park. One of them is beautiful, but still, it's going to be a great wedding. And there will be a covenant. There will be a covenant. And there will be a boundary. And to exist outside of that covenant, to exist outside of that boundary, it will introduce a deathliness to this marriage and this household. And all God's people said, please, every single time. Now, some people kind of bow up, they arch their backs, and they say, well, it doesn't feel like freedom then. It doesn't feel like freedom if this promise that I've made, and you keep talking all about grace, you keep talking about grace, then why can't I do what I want? And honestly, that is a problem that we have to deal with as a congregation. There are some people who believe that grace is license. It's not. <laughs> it's this. And this does not result in you having the freedom to do whatever you want. I hope that this so captures your mind and attention and imagination that you end up following, relinquishing your rights to do whatever you want. Hopefully, this is your God and not the person who's always staring back at you in the mirror. Let's stop right there. Who's your God? How can you tell? Well, <laughs> your God tells you what to do, and you do it. That's how you know. Well, I made a decision 50 years ago or 50 minutes ago. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. We'll see. That decision is made true by the decisions that follow it. The decisions that follow that decision are gonna tell all of us, you looking at me, me looking at you, just who we mean when we say God. And there are some people who say God and maybe even sing God, but they're gods. Look like them. Uh, it is Kid Sunday, and so as you know, I believe the Lion King to be a very uh, bountiful resource for good theology. So, you remember that scene? It's early in the morning. Simba wakes Mufasa up. Says, come on, come on, come on. You promised, you promised, angry face Simba, right? They go out, and they sit on the edge of this little precipice right here, and they're looking at everything. And, and now listen, I am not trying to tell you that The Lion King is a Christian movie, okay? I'm not trying to tell you. What I'm trying to tell you is it gives us a lens to read Scripture, an ear, to hear what it is that God is trying to say. Mufasa says to Simba, yeah, someday you will serve 
all of this. Rule all of this. Remember the phrase? Everything the light touches. Everything the light touches. And of course, Simba, because Simba is chronically human. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Simba says, okay, everything the light touches. Yeah, 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 yeah. But look at that over there. Oh, the elephant graveyard, you must not go over there. End of story. Boundary. And there's covenant. There's calling. There's a vocation. Simba, you will rise and you will reign and you will serve this creation. Right? Simba's like, I like this. Okay, all right, here are the boundaries. What's that over there on the other side of that boundary again? Because I'm really interested in that. And sure enough, as Simba and his little friend, extra credit if you remember her name, so good, you guys, so good, Nala. They transgress the boundary and introduce a deathliness to the situation. Yeah, every time. Every time. Covenants come with boundaries. They do. Covenants come with boundaries. And if you, if you insist on finding out what it's like outside of that boundary, then you are doing significant damage, not just to your covenant, but also to the vocation that should come from your calling. You are doing significant boundary, uh, damage to yourself, by the way, and the other people within arm's reach. So you know how this story goes, right? Now we're in chapter three. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter three. I don't have a lot of these verses up here for you, but I want you to, to kind of take a look here. There's a few things I want to say to you. Verse one, the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. You, you have to be super careful here not to make the serpent the adversary. What we don't need during Lent is you saying, the devil made me do it. <laughs> what we need during Lent is, I am a threat to the lordship of God in my life. I only got two amens out of that. I don't know if that's because it was just so deep, it just hit you like it was just like, right? But I'm gonna say it again because I think maybe that's what it was. Lent, if you get to the end of the Lent, if you get to the end of Lent and what you're saying is, oh, the devil made me do it, you've missed the entire point. Can, can I tell you something? God's bigger than the devil. The biggest threat to God is not the devil. It's you. It's me. The serpent isn't the adversary. The serpent awakens Eve to her capacity to be the adversary. Oof. Serpent said to the woman, did God say you can't eat from any of these trees? God didn't say that. 
The woman said, oh, no, no, no. We may eat from any of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it. God did not say that. Or you shall die. God did say that. But the serpent said to the woman, please, God just doesn't want to have competition. And you know what, said the serpent to Eve, I think you'd make a pretty good God. You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. (laughs) Watch this. Then, sure enough, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Shame happens outside of the boundaries. And if you don't believe it, ask Judas. Shame, this debilitating, demoralizing, demeaning stuff called shame, happens outside of the boundaries because they were ashamed. Because they were ashamed, they found reason to clothe themselves. Listen, outside the boundaries. (laughs) It's not just an elephant graveyard. Outside of the boundary, There is only desire, hear this, outside the boundary, there's only desire, your raging desire for pleasure, for power, for security. Outside of the boundary, it's all the energy that you need to become your own God, the center of your own religious and theological universe, outside the boundary. If you keep reading, (laughs) the Lord God called to the man who, because God came looking for him and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You can hear the preoccupation here. The preoccupation was no longer with the calling and the resulting vocation. The preoccupation was no longer with God. Preoccupation was with self. Okay, watch what happens. So Adam and Eve go back and forth. They're blaming one another, and they they blame the serpent. And and then there are these judgments. There are these ramifications of their decision that God announces. But then watch what happens. And then the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife and clothed them. Now, you're not as excited about that as I want you to be just yet, but I think you will be. Hang with me. So this entire sermon I've been saying to you, and you've been hearing it uh, correctly, if you've heard me say, 
Stay within the boundaries, stay within the boundaries, stay within the boundaries. There are bad things that happen outside of the boundaries. There's not just elephant graveyards. There's lots of ugly things outside the boundaries. Stay within the boundaries because there's a huge price to be paid, and that price will be paid by you personally and by the other people around you. Stay within the boundary, and let me underline all of that. It's a very long sentence. Let me underline all of that. Stay within the boundary, and if you don't, that's not the end of the story. Not only does God not kill them when they eat of their fruit, when they pierce the boundary, when they transgress the boundary, not only does God not kill them, even though they have introduced something of a deathliness to the entire situation, not only does God not kill them, God cares for them outside of the boundary. God knows, God knows what happens outside of the boundary. And God wishes for all of us to stay within the boundaries, to exercise freedom within the boundaries. God wants us to stay within our promises and our covenants. But if and when we do not, that is not the end of the story because God has, seen, has been shown to be willing to follow us outside of the boundaries, to care for us when we are outside of the boundaries, and to absorb the damage done when we move outside of the boundaries. So God clothes them. In some sense, you could say, with these clothes, God marks them. Yes, as people who breached the boundary, but also as people who breached the boundary who are cared for by God. Like ashes on the forehead. How long did you keep the ash on your forehead? Seconds, a 90 seconds. I kept it on 90 seconds. You know, Why? Because, maybe it's, it's because we don't want to be understood as guilty. Some people have an Ash Wednesday service very early in the morning, and some people keep those ashes all day. And some people have to survive questions that are something like this. Hey, what is that? On, you have something. Ugh, check out a mirror. I loved it, I mean, every year, I don't know if he did it this year, but Stephen Colbert would show up and do his show, the ashes on his forehead. The ashes mark us not just as people who are guilty. The ashes mark us as people that God still cares for even when we are outside of the boundary. The ash is not just bad news. You do recognize this, the symbol of the cross, right? The ash is also good news. Maybe it's one of the more tangible ways that we say what we say all the time around here, which is, God knows you and still chooses you. <laughs> See the ash? Sweet Nora Whiteside at the end of the Ash Wednesday service the other day. Hi, Nora. Can I tell a story about you? I promise it'll be short. Okay. She didn't have ashes on her forehead. And why should she? Look at her. She's beautiful and sweet and cute. But here's what she said. She said, 
hey, Dad, I want a dirty cross. I want a dirty cross, too. And Brandon got a chance to explain to her, yeah, this cross marks us as people who can do wrong. The cross also marks us as people who are still claimed. What do I do with this sermon, Pastor? Well, here's what you do with it. Guys, Lent is for losers. And if you, if you can be honest with yourself and one another, that perhaps you too have been known to venture outside of the boundary to venture outside of your calling and your vocation, if you can get comfortable with that fact that you, at times, kind of earn your L, then maybe you can have a deeper appreciation for the extent to which grace will go to chase you down. Because everybody, I know it's Lent, but during the season of Lent, we're encouraged as teachers and preachers to leave you with this sense that every Sunday, Easter's coming. Easter's coming, which means grace is chasing you down. Let it catch you and mark you and bring you back home. If you are helping us, would you go ahead and come to the front and prepare the table I've done it again. I've run long. If you are visiting us today, if you've never been here before, we're about to take communion by intention. And here's what that means. Rather than, you, uh, rather than the elements coming to you, you'll come to the elements. You'll come to the table. And the table is open, and, and you all are invited. Who's invited to this table? Well, at our church, and churches like our church, all who understand their need for grace, no matter what you dragged in here with you. If you understand your need for grace, welcome. Welcome to the table. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand to your feet, exit your pew to the left, to come forward and receive these elements. Heavenly Father, bless these elements and use them, God, to strengthen us so that we can be your people inside the boundaries. But God, by these elements, would you at the same time strengthen us so that we can make the hard journey back home if we're outside of the boundaries, outside of our promises, outside of our covenants, God, then may there be just enough grace here to draw us back, just enough strength to order our steps back, to allow ourselves to be guided back, back, back. So in a moment, I'll ask you to stand to your feet, exit your pew to the left, there will be stations at the back as well if they are more convenient for you. 
And as you approach the people who are holding the bread, please do so with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which cannot be gotten any other way. You can't steal this stuff, you can't buy it, you can't charge it. It can only be given to you as a gift and it will be given to you as a gift today. The broken body of Christ. Wow. Don't eat it just yet. The person handing you the bread will say, this is the body of Christ broken for you, you. Don't eat it just yet. Take it, dip it into the cup right here. AJ's holding a cup. When you dip it into that cup, AJ will say to you, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat. And then find a place to pray. And it can be back at your pew, or it could be at one of these side padded altars. And we will assume if you come to these side padded altars that you're coming for a prayer for healing of one kind or another, physical, emotional, spiritual, relational healing. We believe in all of those prayers for healing and someone will meet you there and pray a very powerful prayer with you. Or you may choose to come to one of these mourner's benches, really. And every kind of prayer is welcome here, but you will find that you will not pray alone. At some point, somebody, and it might be me, will touch you on the back, shoulder, head, and neck to help you to know the truth. And the truth is, you are not alone. You are not alone. You can cycle all the way back to your pew. I'm told that God can hear those prayers too. And you're welcome to do that too if you'd like, but please remain prayerful. One other thing, there's a bowl of water up here meant to help you remember the moment of your baptism, the moment when we put some real tangibility to the fact that you are chosen and claimed for this kingdom movement. And if you've forgotten, it's worth the trip. Touch the water, and hopefully the cool water will jog your memory and help you to remember that you belong inside of those boundaries. You belong, you belong. If you can't come to us, Jason and Katie are on their way to you. It was on the night they just betrayed that our Savior took bread blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying this is my body broken for you and every time you eat of it remember me in the same way later on he took the cup and he held it up before them and said and this is my blood the blood of a new covenant and every time you drink it remember me and now church family if you would all across the sanctuary if you would stand to your feet Exit your pew to the left. Come forward with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of God meant for the people of God.
sing for the love moments of prayers of confession and prayers of intercession before we hear from Pastor Lisa and our kids' prayers. We want to take just a few moments of silence. Brandon's going to kind of conclude his guitar for just about a minute. And in those moments of silence, just complete silence, this season of Lent is a practice. Take these moments for a prayer of confession. You may want to confess that you sometimes choose self-preservation rather than God's story. You may want to choose that you, in your life, have moved away from God inch by inch and asking God to draw you back. So in these moments, would you pray that prayer of confession as we hear from God and as we speak to God in these moments of silence. As we continue in prayer, we want to find ways and opportunities for you to be convinced of God's love, that he draws you back when you move outside the boundaries. And when God draws you back in ways in which you choose yourself rather than God, we want to be able to provide these moments of God's continuing love as he draws you back and close you in his goodness when you find yourself away want to take a couple of moments as we move to some prayers of intercession to pray for some life situations in the life of our community of faith that we need God's specific love and touch. Pastor John mentioned it earlier, but this week we lost June Adams. As RK and Angela are here, we want to surround them in our prayers. So would you pray for RK, June's beloved husband, 50 years be with their daughter, Angela, that God would clothe them in comfort and grace, come alongside of them in their loss. Church, would you also pray for a little baby named Emerson Stowe? Emerson's about five weeks old and probably even now is just concluding what what is going to be a second surgery for this little boy went into surgery this morning at OU Children's. Would you pray for this five-week-old 
that God would bring health and healing and restoration to his life and be with his mom and his dad, Chad and Nella. Before we move to kids' prayers, would you carry to God in prayer that one thing or person in your life that you came in to this sanctuary this morning knowing that God needed to heal and to help and restore and come alongside? join me in looking at the prayers that our kids have prayed over the last month. Now, church, will you pray with me as Jesus taught his disciples to pray using the Lord's Prayer, using debt and debtors? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. 